You are listening to inspiring stories of ordinary people doing extraordinary stuff. Welcome to the Doolanders. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about. Wait! Okay, now, from the beginning. Hit it, boys. Welcome back, Doolanders. It is season two, where the sequel... Is never better than the original. That's what they always say, Blake, but I give you Empire Strikes Back. I give you, I don't rate Empire Strikes Back. And I give you, what is wrong with you, Blake? Well, those little robots like CP3O never did it for me, ever. They're not robots, they're droids. God damn it, Blake. We have spoken to some amazing people over the last, what do you reckon it's been, three months? Yeah, I think so. How many people have we got in this season? We've got 11 people. 11 doers. Eleven doers that you're going to hear from in uh, in season two. We've spoken to a myriad of different people. What are the, what are some of the doers? What have they done or are doing in their lives, Nick? Well, we've got entrepreneurs. Yes, we've got the CEO of an AFL club, and we spoke to him whilst they're up in the hub up in Queensland. Yeah, uh, authors. That's more than one, Blake. More than one authors. More than one author. <laughs> What do you call a um, a couple of authors? As in, what's the collective? Yeah, the collective noun for a couple of authors. Like a, is it a pride of authors? A scribe. Or? Oh, he's off to a. <laughs> oh my god! What a great start. We didn't even research that. No. Oh, look at that. Yeah. Um, it's all downhill from here, then, I suppose. <laughs> it is. It is. What do you reckon? Let's Google that. What else? Who else have we spoken to? Um, we've got people who work in healthy produce. Healthy produce, esports, yeah. esports. That was that was quite incredible. I didn't know how big esports was until we we started talking to to that person. Quite incredible. Winemaker. We'll speak to a winemaker today. That's right. So, I mean, what have you got out of this season, Blake? Oh, look, I'll tell you what I have got. I've got a whole lot of inspiration. What I found was that in. You know, this lockdown situation we've been, it's been Groundhog Day. And quite frankly, to jump on to a, a Zoom call at the end of the day and listen to the doing of our guests has been absolutely inspirational and um, and kept me going. Uh, it has inspired me to run a bloody long way. So in August, I ran 340Ks, which was, that's okay. a PB. PB. In one go? No. 10K, 10K a day is uh, all I could muster up. But um, what about you, mate? What have you been up to? Well, I've been cycling. And so I just got into a rhythm and I just started getting up earlier and earlier. And uh, now I get up at about 5.30 a lot of the days and just jump on either the indoor trainer out on the back deck or get out on the road. And I find it's a great way to clear the head and, and start the day. Set you up for the day. You've clearly been working on the Cristianos, the, the thighs. They'd be... Absolutely up and about and bristling at the moment, yeah. wouldn't they? <laughs> yeah, well, they're mostly sore a lot of the time, I've got to say. Uh, but my mum did say, uh, gee, that Blake, he talks a lot about your thighs. Did she? Yeah. Was she angry about it or? Uh, she was kind of just had question marks over Blake. Really? Mm. I should meet your mum. You probably should. We should have her on the show. We could, as a guest. Well, she's actually just been appointed to the Office of the Public Advocate. Which uh, the, in the OPA uh, looks out and protects uh, the rights of people with disabilities, and she said to me, "Nick, I should have been doing this for the past twenty years." And my response to her was, "Well, at least you're doing it now," and that's actually a very similar type story to our first guest, episode one that you're listening to now, which is Stephanie Tool from Mount Horrocks Winery, and she very late in life in terms of, you know, deciding on a, a full-time career, uh, bought a winery, had a couple of kids, and 28 years later is producing some of the best wines in the world. It's an amazing story. It is an amazing story. She grew up in New Zealand, one of eight kids. Her father used to recount the classics, like was a voracious reader and recounted the, the classics to her and, and the kids. And she has travelled the globe really trotting the paths of, of the stories that her dad's uh, recounted to her. And then, yeah, as you said, found this love of wine and has made a life of it. Um, and it is, it's an inspirational story. It's a, like as she was talking to us about it, like I could see a movie in it 
It was just yeah. – there was just some absolute beauty in this. Doolanders, reckon you're going to love this story. Yeah. So put your feet up, grab a glass of your favourite wine, hopefully a Mount Horrocks, and listen to Steph's amazing journey. Blake, do you like stories of people doing? I love stories of people doing, Nick. Well, if you out there like stories of people doing and you want us to make more stories of people doing, then like this podcast, subscribe, and tell your mates because the more people we have listening, the more episodes we can make, and that's better for everyone out there who's doing or wants to do. And as Arnold would say, do it. I thought he said I'll be back. <laughs> <laughs> Stephanie Tool, welcome to the Doolanders. How are you, Steph? I am very well, thank you, Blake. And welcome to you, Nick and Blake. Oh. Great to be here. Thank you, Steph. It's great to see you again. Hey, Steph, tell our listeners of the Doolanders, what do you do? I am the owner and winemaker of a really small winery in the Clare Valley called Mount Horrocks Wines. So it's... Um, an Australian certified organic uh, winery with uh, my own vineyards. So they're all single vineyards, certified organic. And um, yeah, what I uh, make is what I get off the vineyard and uh, no more. Nice. Um, hey, I was, uh, I was recently reading uh, wine writer Nick Ryan recently said this. He said, Claire Valley Sauvignon could ask for no better ally and advocate than Stephanie Tool. Tool is comfortably among the very finest producers of variety anywhere in the world. What's it actually take? That's, that's they're nice words, yeah. aren't they? I bet that's amazing to hear. But, you know, I, I stood a little bit taller that day, I have to say. <laughs> there was a little certain spring in my step. Um, yeah, it. Um, I've been making semillon. Well, I've been making wine in the Clare Valley for twenty-eight years, so I was a little bit late to the party. But um, semillon has always been a, a wine that I've loved, so I've never really thought about whether it's going to sell that well or whether it was fashionable or not. And I've been making this uh, style, this particular style of semillon, for about twenty years now. And it's been pretty much um, acknowledged, most definitely, by other, other uh, wine writers. And certainly it's been acknowledged by my very loyal and um, faithful customers and mail-order customers that continually buy it year after year. So um, just to get that acknowledgement after all this time was just fantastic. I loved it. I bet you did walk a little taller. Um, and we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll get to... Uh, all of the detail around, you know, what it actually took to deliver that, you know, after so many years in the in the valley. But you said you're a little bit late to the party. You don't actually come from a long lineage of Clare Valley winemakers, do you? In fact, you grew up in um, in New Zealand. Where where did uh, the journey all begin? My journey, journey. Yeah, your journey. Your, your yeah, journey, yeah. So you know? my journey, journey was um, one of uh, my mother had eight children, one, one died quite young in child, childhood. So I have five brothers and a sister. And we come from a, a fairly, um, you know, working class background where um, sport was sort of like the, the only thing, really. Yeah. We all were sports mad and um, food with a, such a big, <laughs> a big family was really important as well. And my mother... I just remember she washed and ironed every single day except Sunday and she cooked. We, we had three meals at home every day. She did food continually. <laughs> That's all she did, I think. And, you know, with the big vegetable garden as well, she, there was the preserves and all the, the rest of the, the jams and the pickles and the whole bit that went with it nonstop. And, and what was it like being, you know, one of seven? Like it must have been full on. Oh, totally full on. Meal times. We often had ring-ins as well. There was often friends that were sort of coming to play and go, oh, can they stay for dinner? So it wasn't just us. We just have to squeeze up and, you know, there'd be one or two extras almost all the time. 
But that never seemed to bother her. She didn't, she just sort of took it in a stride and made the food go round. And we always had dessert and we, in the winter, we always had soup. So it was always three courses in the winter and always two in summer. And, you know, that was just expected. We were, we were a pretty full on family. Yeah. And your father was a pretty big influence on you as well, wasn't he? He was. He, um, he, he was sort of part of that pre-war era, left school really young, got a job as a, um, um, he was a, a, an apprentice painter, but he actually then, um, he used to publish the local newspaper, the Timaru Herald, and he was an avid reader. We, we were brought up with books. Um, we didn't know any, anything else, and my earliest records rec- recall was, um, as a child, just reading. We all read, and we still all read. It's really interesting. We're all still really good readers. But he loved the classics. He loved all the old classics, and then and some of the more contemporary classics of the time, like Steinbeck and um, uh, I can't think off the top of my head. Anyway, but one particular um, passion of his was ancient Greece and ancient Egypt, and he just devoured books on those just loved them so that had i think quite an um an impact on my life yeah and when you think about that impact and you know that um because i can sort of picture it right he's he's telling you these amazing stories of ancient ancient greece and egypt and Mm. taking the um the you know the clan through these journeys of of his storytelling um what what sort of influence did that have on you? Did that fuel your want to explore the globe? Do you know, I, I think it must have because I um, I married my childhood sweetheart, uh, young. Not well, I wasn't young then, twenty one, and at twenty three we left New Zealand, left Timaru. I'd never been out of, I'd never been further north than Christchurch, which was about a hundred miles north. Right. Um, so I'd never, be, I'd never even been out of the South Island, let alone New Zealand. Yeah. And so we embarked on um, what was going to be sort of a year's travelling. Um, uh, not uncommon, you know. A lot of Kiwis and and Australians travel. We, we're travellers. We love travelling. Um, but um, we didn't just go straight to the UK, as was quite common then. Uh, we, we flew to LA and um, an old school friend of my husband's um, whose father was in the US um, Air Force um, based in Timaru um, was living in LA. So Bob had become Chris with a K and we were headlong into the gay scene of LA. And I'm, I'm talking 1978 so it wasn't quite as acceptable as it is now. Um, we had a blast, needless to say. We, it was pretty wild. Um, but that was, you know, part, part of that start in the journey, I guess. Um, sounds sounds yeah, amazing. So so that, that, that's a pretty, like, straight out of, you know, this, this small town. I think there was only 30,000 people in, um, in the town that you yeah. grew up and um, you, land, you land in LA to meet uh, Bob, who's become Chris with a K. And <laughs> tell me, we were talking about this the other day. You ended up um, at Hugh Hefner's Playboy Mansion. <laughs> How, what happened? Yeah, not one of the play bunnies, I can oh, tell right. you. Oh, right, okay. okay? Thank so you let's, for just, the... let's just get this straight. Good clarification. So Chris with a K was at university and he was working part-time as a barman at um, the Playboy Mansion. And so he snuck us in one morning um, early. We got in early. He teed it up with the guards. We sort of signed in and he gave us a private tour of the um, Playboy Mansion. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's pretty amazing. Um, not many people out of... Uh out of small towns in New Zealand can say, hey, I've done that. So, <laughs> so <not> true. <laughs> so, so uh, like, we, when we spoke, um, take us through some of your travels around the, around the globe. Yeah. You've done some amazing things. 
Look, I can do the fast, fairly fast forward because it, it lasted for about four years. The one year sort of got extended and extended and extended. So from LA, we bought this amazing 1968 Chrysler New Yorker Matilda tank and headed on up the, up the coast through Big Sur, um, Steinbeck Country, Cannery Row, Mice and Men, you know, these were the books that I yeah. had been brought up on and read as bedtime stories, you know. Um, and so that was amazing to go up through that country. So continued on up to Canada where we had friends uh, in British Columbia, worked up there for a while on a bee farm extracting honey and on to Edmonton to the Commonwealth Games where I worked as a cocktail waitress and then back down into the U US for the Grand Tour and um, we spent about until November. So this was April when we first arrived in the US and then um, spent the rest of those months traveling around the US. Most Went to most states, um, camping sometimes, staying in motels sometimes, um, saw a huge amount of the country and finally landing in New York. Um, it took me years to want to go back to New York after that experience. 1978 in New York was not a very nice place to be. It was pretty rough, it was dirty, there was a lot of violence, we were threatened on the street. And I really couldn't wait to get on that bus and hop on that Freddie Laker plane and fly off to uh, London. So um, London was sort of the goal, that's where we knew we would get legal work and um, sort of settled into London life. Uh, working, I worked as a temp uh, in, um, in hospitals to start off with. I had some amazing jobs. I met some fantastic people. New Zealanders and Australians were really, really sought after as temps. Why is My that? My temporary, we just worked hard. We were good right. at what we did yeah. and we worked hard. And numerous times I was given a job for a week and I ended up there staying for months and sort of sorting out cleaning up what was gone wrong and, um, and you know, organising the whole system, really. And yeah. um, one, of, one of my favourite jobs was working for a Professor Sybil Yates in um, a Centre for Deaf Children, and she was a, a world leader in the research at that time. Measles was still, you know, still being rife, and there were a lot of deaf kids as a result of um, mothers having um, received, or having uh, contacted measles and pregnancy and uh, she was just amazing. So that was the sort of jobs I did and, and every time I wanted to go off to Europe to um, travel, which we did, um, then I would just give up that job, do the travelling and then come back and sign on then and have a new one to go to. So in, in that time we did, you know, lots of little two-week tours Quite different to now. I mean, I've been to Europe recently where you can get really cheap flights anywhere in Europe yeah. where you used to be able to. That'll come back. And um, But they were not available then. So we did a lot of trains, a lot of backpacking. Um, one particular year we hopped on a train and backpacked down the coast of Yugoslavia, hopping off at the islands on the, in the um, Adriatic split Dubrovnik, and then spent six weeks in, in the Greek islands sleeping <laughs> sleeping on the beaches and, you know, living the dream, I guess. I was just um, about, I was just about to say, <laughs> living the dream. Like it, it just, was it yeah. just about, was it just about experiencing life? Like for, you know, yeah. everything that it had, yeah. Yeah, I mean, things like Joni Mitchell, in Crete, we went. We went to the the caves that she sort of wrote a lot of her famous songs. You know, that was still quite real. That was still sort of, you know, that was still part of what was happening. And um, there was a, a fantastic temple in Crete called Gnosis, and that was only just starting to be renovated or renovated, restored. And um, went there and sort of was able to relay all this to my father before heading off down to Israel and spending three months in Israel on a kibbutz and, and then travelling, walking the donkey track up to Masada, which, you know, I, as a kid I knew all about this, you know, that was 
these weren't new new places that I had were find, was finding out about. They were places I knew about, but just wanted to experience. So that was um, fantastic, and I was sending a weekly journal home to my father because I knew he would never he would never visit those um, places that he loved so much. So you were basically so yeah. So you were telling you were retelling the stories in some way, shape, or form back to him that he'd told you. You know, over the years, in you know, in a, just in a different way, in a different way, but also the fact that I was aware of them, that these places, I knew these places existed, um, and I wanted to visit them. And um, we slept on, went right down to the Dead Sea, which was it's part of Egypt again now, but it was Israel then. It was um, occupied territory. Slept on the beaches and um, had the Bedouin. Um, tribes people sell us pita bread that they've made from UNESCO flour and um, yeah did a bit of diving in the Red Sea that was pretty cool. And at what point did you decide to uh, to pull up stumps on the travel and? Yeah look it, I'm not even sure why because I I remember leaving London in 1982 we are now and catching a train to Paris, and I was crying because I thought, I don't want to leave here. I'm not, I'm not done with this place. I love the theatre, the arts. I was just totally, I just absorbed everything. But we did, you know, we had a couple of weeks skiing in Switzerland, and then a lot of people were doing the Grand Asia tour at that stage, and so Egypt was the first stop um, after Greece, and just catching the train up to Luxor and walking up to the Valley of the Kings and visiting Tutankhamun's tomb was just amazing. It was um, awesome. And uh, it was really, there were no hotels there. There were no five-star hotels like there are now. Um, We stayed in a little backpacking place and absorbed it all. The Luxor Temple, which was just extraordinary. And... um, continued on to India, where even though we'd been in Egypt, I don't think anything prepares you for India. And the the smells and the sights and the noise and the people, which must be even more now. I mean, I can't even imagine what it must be like now. But, you know, you you sort of get used to that. And um, we had about nine weeks just travelling around a bit, um, visiting all the great sights and... I think of all the wonderful sights that I'd seen up until that point, I don't think anything quite took my breath away like the Taj Mahal. It is just the most extraordinary place in the world. And to think that it was built for the love of his wife and it's beautiful and it's just in this extraordinary place in the middle of a lot of squalor and uh, poverty. just sits there. And then um, trekking in Nepal, uh, in the Annapurnas, and that was amazing. Um, fantastic experience before heading to Burma. Burma was, you know, just starting to come, be recognised, well, just only starting to be able to visit uh, Nepal, uh, Burma. And um, we uh, went up to Rangoon, I went from Rangoon to Mandalay up to Mamio, where the the little hillside, um, well, it wasn't a hillside, it was huge mansions where the English used to go for the summer to the cool. Um, and that was, that was a wonderful experience. The people were just beautiful, so calm and peaceful and gentle. Yeah. Yeah, and how did you find your way? Because you you ended finding your way back to London, didn't you? Where you um, you spent some time, you know, working a number of roles, and um, and then you at that at some point in time, you, it became a little, you know, I think you said you were riding on the tube one day, and it yeah. felt a little dark no, in London. The, and... That was the second trip back. Yep. So after um, finishing the Asian tour and going to Thailand, Chiang Mai, Singapore, little stopping at Bali, I'm back to New Zealand for a year. Right. Um, 
And then we spent a year up in the Gulf of Carpentaria on a prawn boat fishing. So you were, um, you were a fisherwoman? Yeah, yeah. Yep. So How, that was... What, um, when, what was it like? <laughs> you li- so you lived on the boat? Lived on the boat. In fact, we were at sea for quite a long time. We used to get the um, provisions dropped off by barge. We were, I think the longest I was out was three months. Did you fishing. did you love it? Like what like what sort of a lifestyle oh, I did was it? Uh, look, I, I don't I don't mind a bit of hard work. It didn't bother me, you know. Um, and it was hard work. It was really hard work. But yeah, we were earning earning pretty good money, and the idea was to go back to London. Yep. Hadn't quite got London out of the system. Yep. And um, so we did that in 1985, and um, I walked back into a job that I'd previously been in. Um, as a secretary to a company chairman and just spent the next year sort of, yeah, soaking it up. Theatre, opera, ballet, art galleries, as much as I could until, you're right, one one night I was, and it was in um, January and I was coming home, you know, an hour's, more than an hour's commute each way and I was walking back from the tube station and it was dark and it was sort of dirty and there was rubbish and I just thought, you know what, I think it's time. We'd spent some time in um, Australia over in Perth, those blue skies, beautiful beaches, the cleanliness and the way of life and I thought, nah. So back to New Zealand, sold everything up and moved over to Perth. In 1986. Perth, was that the place where you found wine for the first time yes. in, in, in your well, obsession? Well, well I'd, become, I'd become interested in London and I'd attended some wonderful um, tastings in London. And actually, it did taste my very first Australian wines in London, um, some Margaret River Cabernets. And so that really did... Um, when I got to Perth, I thought, I know nothing about Australian wine. I'll go and do a course. So I did a TAFE course, but the um, the guy that was running the course thought that perhaps I might know a little bit more than he did about wines and suggested I go somewhere else to do another course, which I did. And the um, the guy, Kevin, that was running that offered me a job. And um, I said, well, I, I, I don't want to work in a bottle shop, actually. It's not really what I want to do. And so he um, he actually asked me to sit on his tasting panel first up. So that was very clever and cunning plan, I thought. He got me interested Smart. that way, and then kept on. You know, well, I like your, your your organizational skills, your secretarial skills. I think you'd be good for the shop. Um, we can do a newsletter. We can do all this stuff. So in the end, I said yes, and I worked. That was my first. Uh, job in the industry was working in a bottle shop in Scarborough for Kevin Luthi. Hey Steph, can you describe yeah. can you describe the Clare Valley to our listeners? Clare, look, <laughs> obviously I've been here for twenty eight years, so I, I must like it. It's lovely. It's um, I used to say it's really good because it's only an hour and a half from the Adelaide Airport, and I can hop on a plane and go somewhere. I don't think that so much anymore, Um, although I still like to do that. It's small, so it is a series of valleys, so it's rather beautiful, undulating valleys. Um, We have quite cold weather. It's very cold in the winter, Um, but then we get really hot weather. Well, not really hot, but we can can get really hot weather uh, in the summer. yeah, it's um it's a pretty nice place to be and when I moved here in um at the end of 92 I really had no idea what I was going to do. I um I really liked the idea of taking up golf and bridge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How's that working for you? <laughs> How is your golf game? Oh, did you? (laughs) I had two lessons last year, but then I got busy and I couldn't continue. (laughs) Right, Right. okay. Um, 
I'd learned to play bridge in Israel, so I've... I, that wasn't a new thing, um, and but I still haven't been able to, you know, tie myself down to a regular, you know, having a regular partner and being able to play regularly, which would be great. So I, I arrived um, in 92, and I did my first vintage in, in um, 93, and Mount Torrex came up for sale. Uh, I was 12 weeks pregnant in 93, uh, doing vintage, which was pretty tough, but didn't really think much of it. Um, Mount Horrocks came up for sale, and I remember saying, well, that'll give me something to do. You know, can't be that hard, can it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the impending birth of a child, not enough. Not enough. That won't, that won't be enough <laughs> on my plate. And bearing in mind, I'd never even as much of changed a nappy in my life. <laughs> hey, mate. What are you doing? I'm crushing grapes, Blake. What on earth are you doing that for? I just like doing it. Hey, I've got a joke for you. What did the grape say when it was crushed? I don't know. Nothing. It just let out a little whine. Mm. What are you doing? Well, I'm just enjoying a glass of the Mount Horrocks Semillon and doing nothing. That's not very Doolanderish. The Doolanders is proudly sponsored by Mount Horrocks Winery, the wine of choice when you're done doing for the day. What was the state of uh, Mount Horrocks Winery at that point when you when you purchased it? Um, was it operational? Yeah, look, it was. It was, but I I could see. You know, just immediately I thought this has got huge potential. I don't know why I, where that came from or, or whatever, but I, there was a dessert wine called, um, that I still make to this day that's, um, well known called, uh, Cordon Cut, which is made without botrytis and the canes are cut. And I thought, this is really unique. This is something that I could do something with. So that was the wine that I, I, I sort of started, I gave my, um, you know, most attention to at, in that first instant. So, um, you know, and that was rewarded by, um, because in 2015, it was actually served at Queen Elizabeth's 80th birthday. So, you know, that was a pretty wild thing. That is that is wild, nearly as wild as the Hugh Hefner story. But um, <laughs> that, that, that's an, that is amazing. Like, how did you... How did that come about? Which part? The, not the Hugh Hefner part. The, it being served <laughs> oh. at... at um... Oh, look, I believe there was... Um, I believe there was... A, well, I do know. There was um, a competition in the UK where sh- chefs were um, asked to put in uh, recipes for the Queen's official lunch at, at um, Mansion House. And the... Um, Public voted, and a restaurant in London called Petrus won uh, with a English custard tart. Right. And they chose the cordon cut to go with it. There were only four wines served at the lunch, by the way. So, wow. and the cordon cut was the only Australian wine. That's amazing. So you bought you've bought this winery, Steph. Yeah. Um, you've thought, yeah, look, there's yeah. some there's some good product coming out of here, and. T- tell us about you know you, the the journey of the the transformation mm. of of the winery. Okay, so I'm pregnant with Georgie, Georgina. She was born in November '93, and that was all good. No no problems. Very easy. No problems. Managed to change a nappy. That was okay. Yeah. And um, and then uh. Alexander was born 15 months later. Didn't quite get the timing right for that because he was born on the 1st of March. So he, he was born 1st of March and on the 4th of March I was working at the crusher with him in the pushchair by my side. So I just went straight from the hospital straight to the winery and straight to work. Really? Would you um, <laughs> would you recommend that for um, no, 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 no? I would not recommend that at all. But at the time, a I didn't really think anything of it. I just knew that the work had to be done. Vintage was upon us. The grapes had to be picked, and there was no one else to do it. But 
No, I wouldn't recommend that. That was a tough time. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, it wasn't until, um, I guess, just it, I, I was um, buying fruit from local growers at that stage. Didn't have my own vineyards. And I knew that to make great wine, I had to have full control. So my aim at that point was to plant my own vineyards, which I have since done. So they're all, um, the fruit from my, um, goes into my wine, comes from all my own vineyards. So it's been 28 years, but you get there in the end. <laughs> <laughs> so just, just rewinding a little bit, because I'm a little perplexed by the whole, um, I'll just go and buy a winery and then I started releasing wines bit. Um, yeah. Because had you done any of that process before? Like when you purchase a no. winery, does it come with a manual no. or is there a guy there saying, yes, yeah, so no. what you've got to do is this, this and this? Because it wasn't YouTube. No, <laughs> so, <sorry>. no, Google. <laughs> so, no Google. How, how do you even – how does day one We didn't one have phones look? actually. Oh, right. <laughs> oh, bewildering. Totally bewildering. But, you know, I had um, my partner's Jeff Grossett just, you know, put that into perspective. So I had a really good teacher. I had best. And um, yeah, I made a few mistakes along the way. I, I'm fairly single-minded. I think I know what I want, and I'm going to do it that way. And sometimes that didn't work out. But, you know, I've learned, and I think um, I'm okay at what I'm doing now. I think I, think I have a good palate. Um, and with that palette comes a good memory. I think that's really important as well, for sure. And I, I don't know, work ethic, uh, work ethic, maybe. Just get the job done. Just do it. <laughs> just do it. Just get the job done. Yeah. And um, so, if you think about that transformation and that, you know, that evolution, you you bought all the fruit. You then planted your own. Um, vineyards now you're you know you're producing or supplying your own fruit to to make your own wine um what like you talked about you've got a great palate what what's been you know you said hard work what's the what's the secret to your success is there any one thing or you know is it a culmination of of things how do you what do you put it down to i don't think there's any one thing i think you know, when I moved to the Clear Valley, I had no thought that I would end up where I am now. But I, but really, um, does it surprise me? Probably not. I, um, I've just worked hard. I've always had a, a, a vision of what I've wanted to achieve. Um, I love what I'm doing. That yeah. makes it really, really easy, isn't it? Doesn't it? If you love what you're doing, doesn't that make it so much easier? Yeah, it sure, um, it sure does. And I was going to ask, like, what what is it that you know has has got you out of bed each morning? Like, because you know you <laughs> apart you, from breakfast, you mean? Yeah, apart, <laughs> apart from breakfast, or you know, kids that you need to feed and yeah, grapes yeah. that you need to you know crush and yeah, like what what has yeah, all of that? What's what's got you out of bed of the of the morning? Was it was it a vision? Was it a purpose? Was it a passion? Yeah, you know, what is it? I think a passion, most definitely. I mean, you can't do what I've done for the last twenty eight years if you don't really, really love what you're doing. And I have no intention of not doing it, of, you know, giving it up for a while yet. So, so long as I'm fit and healthy, I will continue to do what I'm doing. And, um, yeah, that's, that's, yeah, what I'm hoping to do. And you were part of some pretty big innovation in, in wine as well, mm. um, something yes. that everyone sort of come yeah. to accept as being the norm. But can you talk our listeners through how you changed the wine landscape Forever? Yeah, I can actually. So in um, 2000, there were um, a group of us in the Clare Valley that got together and four, four uh, producers in particular, so myself, Grosset, Mitchells and Napstein, and um, we were the driving force behind the Clare Valley Screw Cap Initiative. 
where 13 producers in that first year either put all or some of their Riesling under screw cap. And in that year, I took all those producers' wines, um, some, in, some under cork and under screw cap, to London and did a tasting at Australia House uh, in front of the top UK wine writers and, and uh, associated um, trade. And that, I think, was just a, a, a really defining time in our industry. As you, as you, we all know, we, I mean, I don't know, 90-something percent, 98, something like that, of all wines in Australia are, um, are bottled under screw cap. So that was significant, no question. And what was the real driving force behind that? Because I imagine corks were used in bottles historically because that was oh, the best available material. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, what, no what, question. So quality. We yeah. were just fed up. We were just fed up of the poor quality cork that was being sold to us and the the fact that we have spent all this time, we spent all this time from the vineyard hand-picking the fruit, bringing it in, hand-tending the wine, and then we put a bit of bark in it. I mean, it doesn't make sense, does it? It's just ridiculous. So quality first most. You know, and, and, a, and a, I guess for our customers to know that what I put in that bottle is what they're going to get. Uh, I had a bottle, a cork bottle of French champagne last Saturday night. Down the sink. What a waste. Yeah. <laughs> what a waste, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Luckily, I had a backup. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you've got a few backups. Hey, uh, hey Steph. Um, in 2009, Decanter Wine Magazine said that Jeffrey Grosset and Stephanie Tool are in the world's famous five of wine power couples. Now, when you read that, what did you think? I laughed. <laughs> <laughs> Until I found out it was decanter, and then I thought, oh, okay, well. I'll that take means that something, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then I had to look up what a power couple was. <laughs> Do you remember what the, the description of a power couple was? Yeah, where a couple that are romantically involved or married, um, where both are famous for an accomplishment in their own right. Yeah. So talk to us a little bit about... Um, Team Jeff and Steph. I've just made a rhyme there. Does anyone has anyone ever called you Team Jeff and Steph? No, I think they have actually. Well, you could keep that one if you like. <laughs> Thank you. <Yeah>. Good. <laughs> it, we have a pretty full-on life, you know. Um, we work together and live together. You know, a lot of you guys in Melbourne are having the, the old lockdown. How are you going with twenty-four-seven? <laughs> yeah. Well. Let's just say there's a fair bit of distance um, in our, ho- our ha- household at the moment, just to remain sane. <laughs> exactly. Well, you've got two people that are driven and um, passionate about what they're doing, but I guess we, we also give each other huge support. Um, and we do bouncy things off each other and ask, you know, what do you think about this? Or I'm thinking you're doing that. And what would you do? And... You know, typical sort of couple stuff, I guess. Um, you're playing it down, Steph. Um, <laughs> Am I? You are. <laughs> you are. <laughs> hey, we're just about out of time. Um, would love your advice, your 20 cents worth of, of advice for, you know, any of our listeners that are thinking about, you know, exploring the globe or pursuing their passion. Um, I love the way that you recount your stories of travels. I, you know, I reckon there's either a book or a movie in it. Um, and or a three-hour Doolander podcast special. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And you should play you um, in the movie. And um, Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> so what's your, what, what's your advice for those people that, have, that are passionate about, you know, exploring what they're passionate about? Look, 
It's a different world. There's no question of that. My kids um, have travelled a lot. We travelled when they were little and right up and well, as more recent as last year. They're 25 and 26, and they they're pursuing their own um, professions. But all through their growing up years, I, I used to say, "There's nothing you can't do. You want to do something, you just do it. Don't don't even think that there's, it's not." possible. Um, I never thought I couldn't hop in a cherry picker in an orchard in Israel and pick the top of the apple trees. Don't, don't even think that I couldn't do that. Of course I can do that. Um, when I first started as a medical secretary, I could, I, I could two-finger type and I got offered this, I got headhunted and I got offered this job and I thought, can't be that hard. Well, I've never typed in my life. <laughs> You know? yeah. yeah. Do you ever, do you ever, uh, if, Al, if Alexander's ever in trouble, do you point at him and say, you know what I was doing four days after you were born? Oh, yeah, but he, he throws that back one back at me, you know. <laughs> so, you know, if you were a proper mother, you'd have been nurturing me. <laughs> anyway, that, 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 that turned out okay, so I can't that. It just, I, I think you need, kids these days need, there's a lot of pressure a lot of pressure to, you know, do the right thing. Just follow your heart. Do what you want to do. There's plenty of time later on for all this business stuff and houses and, oh, mortgages and kids. I was very, quite old when I had my two, you know. Well, that's probably a point a that, we, we did, that we didn't really pick up on, that you were, you were 38 when you purchased Mount Horrock. Yeah. Right? Um, uh, 30, 30, was I 38 or 39? I forget. Mm, somewhere around there. Doesn't matter really. There are only figures, there are only numbers. Yeah, I mean, that's, it takes a lot of courage to do something like that. So, um, especially from an industry you didn't have any background in and... Um, yeah. You know, I never thought that at like the didn't, time. Didn't matter to you. <laughs> no, nope, didn't matter. It didn't for a moment matter. Um, and it was the best decision I've ever made, I think. No question. That's Maybe it was time I grew up. You think? <laughs> Never no. grow up. No. It became, res became responsible. No. <laughs> don't. Don't ever. Um, what's next, Steph? What do you think about? Like when you think about, you know, what are you going to attack next? Do you know what? I was just thinking that the other day and I, at one point I thought, you know, I've probably only got another, you know, doing, working this hard, probably another five years. But I think through this COVID thing, no, I think I've probably got more years than that. If I can keep staying fit and healthy and loving what I'm doing, why stop doing it? As long as I can keep some holidays in there, get the balance right. <laughs> yes. A bit more travelling when we're able to, you know? Yeah, and and if um, if Nick was your fairy godmother and could you know um, whisk you away to anywhere around the globe right now, where would you go? Well, I was planning. I was at this point. What day are we? It was going to be Portugal. Right of this moment, yeah. yeah, yeah. But that's Portugal will still be there. That it will. Hey, Steph, um, we just wanted to say thank you so much for uh, joining us on the, on the Do-Landers. You, you, um, what a delight you are and what an amazing story and amazing journey that uh, your life has been. Um, I've found it absolutely both entertaining um, and inspiring. So thank you for, again for coming on the Do-Landers. Look, I just want to thank you because I think I've raised the average age significantly from your previous guest. So <laughs> it's really good that you're spreading it and um, giving some diversity to the program. So I'm delighted you've... Um, Nick, you kept asking me and I kept thinking, oh, he doesn't really want to interview me. <laughs> so no, I think you. your longest lead time, about a year, I think. Uh, about a year ago, I think I met you. <laughs> I think it was... It was about a year, I know. I feel bad about that, but I just kept on thinking, you can't be serious. <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> well, it was one of the funny things about the, the, the coronavirus has actually made it a lot easier to interview someone yeah. in a different state. Yeah. So there's a silver lining. Exactly. 
Exactly, yeah. That's great. Thanks, Steph. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Steph. And there we have it, Blake. That's Steph Tool. Do you think she'll ever retire? Uh, no, <laughs> not not a chance. Was I right? Like the the whole romantic movie pace. Like what I just loved that she'd been told these amazing amazing stories by her father, some of the classics, and Steph's want to do was to go and explore. And she found her childhood sweetheart in school and off they went and travelled the globe uh, really in, in pursuit of what she wanted to do. I love the fact that she took up a whole bunch of jobs where she didn't know what she was doing but faked it till she made it. But just did that work in order to really fund what she really wanted to do and, and that was to explore the globe. Um, she is such a bundle of energy, Steph. Like, no wonder she's gone on to, to do what she's done. And not tied down by seemingly much, you know. Age is just a number. Doesn't have any fear about, you know, you know, being a medical secretary and could only two-finger type. I'll do that. That's fine. Never cherry-picked. I'll do that. I can do that. Of course I can do that. And just taking Lived that, on a fishing boat for a year. <laughs> exactly. But never for one moment thought that she couldn't do what it is she was being asked to do. And um, you can only imagine she's passed those same, in the same way that her father passed on stories to her, she's passed that on to her kids to say, you can do anything, just don't have that fear of failure. You don't have to be successful immediately. You know, your mortgage, all that stuff, business stuff can wait for later. Just go out and experience things. There's a great lesson in there. Yeah, sure is. Nick, that is all we have time for on this very first episode of Season 2 of The Do-Landers. Uh, great to be back, mate. It is. It really is. And that's Episode 13 done, and we'll be back with Episode 14 as soon as you press play. Yeah, exactly. So, look, we'd really love this show to grow. Um, so what we need you, our listeners, to do is to subscribe, share it with your friends, tell your mates about it, um, rate us and review us on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you, you source your podcasts from. If you could do that for us and help share the, uh, the stories of our doers, that would be amazing. Thanks, Do Landers. <laughs>